This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Grace Andrews, VP of Scientific Research for Project Vesta. We're airing this episode today, the 8th of April, to coincide with the launch of a two-hour documentary, Solving for Zero. And this documentary will be followed a week later by a 10-part learning series, Searching for Climate Innovation. So Solving for Net Zero is a collaboration between Wondrium and Bill Gates, plus leading innovators that are looking to find solutions to hit net zero by 2050. And Dr. Grace Andrews is one of those featured scientists in this documentary. So in the episode today, we discuss the technology of coastal carbon capture and its dual climate change benefits. The two reasons Grace transitioned from academia into industry and her advice for others making this transition too and how Grace has stepped into leadership and how she's created strong boundaries between her work and life. I can't wait for you to hear this episode and for you to see Solving for Zero because I was so privileged to be able to see a sneak preview at that documentary. I can tell you it is really incredible. And when you find out the intention behind this particular documentary, you're going to be blown away too. So let's dig in. So hi, Grace. Welcome to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. So excited to be able to have you on the show today. So I'd love it if you could start by introducing yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Hannah. I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, My name is Grace Andrews. I am the VP of Science at a climate change mitigation tech startup called Project Festa. Um, My Academic background is in earth sciences, specifically aqueous isotope geochemistry, which is a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But I have spent my whole career working on the global carbon cycle and climate change and the development of what we call negative emission technologies or NETs, which are technologies that can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and therefore combat climate change. And that's the kind of work we do at Vesta. Oh, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. And the first question I want to ask you then is if you have been involved in climate change from, um, for a long time now, where did that initial interest in climate change come from? Yeah, I mean, so I think probably like so many of the people you talked to, um, my interest in climate change really started with just an innate fascination in planet Earth and everything it does and everything it can do. Um, You know, when you really stop and think about it, you know, the Earth, it's everything from volcanoes to ice sheets to deserts and rainforests and the deep sea. It's this incredible chunk of rock that we have found ourselves privileged to live on. And um, so I just always sort of an innate 
passion for understanding the earth and its systems. But, um, you know, climate change specifically, I think timing, you know, is just good timing in a lot of ways. You know, when I was really finishing high school, my senior year of high school, about to head off to college, trying to figure out what am I going to study at university? What am I going to do with my life? Um, it was at that moment um, that the documentary um, An Inconvenient Truth came out. So the documentary made by Al Gore on climate change. And seeing that documentary at that particular point in my life really crystallized for me how I felt I could use my passion to do something that had an impact and really made me want to pursue climate science going forward. So I, I basically, I started college as a declared earth science major, went from there, master's, PhD, postdoc, all earth science, um, and eventually, yeah, transitioned to industry to, to keep working on climate change technologies. Wow, so you really held that passion all the way through that academic pipeline. Yeah. But I've seen you on the film. So we're here also to talk about Wondrium Teams, which is a collaboration with Bill Gates. And the film is all about really um, engaging with leading innovators that are finding environmental solutions to hit net zero by 2050, which is a concept that's really close to my own heart as well. And I was really privileged to be able to watch this documentary before it even comes out. And I was like, ah, oh, ha, stuff, more stuff that I hadn't even considered before. Mm -hmm. um, and I won't spoil it, but I might drop a few things. <laughs> but you also talk about having an interest in science way, way, way before what you've talked about today. And you mentioned that your dad is a chemist. Yeah. So how did that influence your kind of curiosity, shall we say? Yeah. I mean, I think probably the biggest thing it did was it just put science on my radar at a very early age, you know, and really helped foster what I think was always there in me to begin with. But um, my father was always, you know, he was a chemist, his father, his father was a chemist. This was just embedded in my family and my family culture. And, you know, I had this sort of innate curiosity and then I think the biggest thing my father gave me was he always sat there and said, you know, you can do this. Like you've got the right sort of, I don't know, that sounds the right kind of brain for it. He's like, you're logical, you're smart, you can do this. And from early age, I just had someone in my corner telling me that I could be successful in this career. Um, and so I think that was really, that was really important and just giving me the encouragement um, to keep doing this, even when things felt kind of hard or challenging, so. That's really nice to hear that you had that kind of voice, not just in your head, but also out there in front from your dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got the qualities for this. You're the type of yeah. person and have the type of qualities that will do well here and you can do it. So that's such a, um, a really positive and the fact that you had science on your radar so early so this was the same for me too because my dad is a chemist although he didn't ever go to university he did mm. it through a more industrial route so there was always that kind of um that going to the museums being hands-on with the stuff that was embedded into 
daily life in a way that I perhaps would not have had if if he hadn't been a scientist. So yeah, chemist galore. (laughs) So with this film, Hitting Net Zero by 2050, how did you actually get involved in the film in the first place? Yeah, so um, Wondrium, which is the uh, production company and the documentary is being released on wondrium.com, um, they actually reached out to Vesta um, and approached us about potentially appearing in the film. Um, you know, we, a number of us at Vesta took a call with them early on and just really heard about their vision for the documentary. And one thing that they said from the get-go um, was that a major objective for them was to make this documentary focused on women and minorities who are leading the the charge in terms of innovation for climate change. And that just really spoke to me. You know, that really was something that convinced me that this was a project um, that I wanted to be involved in. Um, So yeah, I was very eager to to sign up and work with them on this and and share Vesta's story, but also my my own personal story. And now you say that, I didn't know that was the intention behind the movie or whatever we want to call it here, because I know it's a series of releases. It's not just one big movie. That is something that I actually noticed. And until you said that, I hadn't picked up on the fact that this was an intention behind, behind the movie. I'm calling it a movie. I don't, what should I actually call it? <laughs> so it, it is a full-length documentary. Okay. And then it is, that's being released on April 8th. And then following that, there are, it's a docu-series. So sort of more in-depth looks at each particular um, innovation that was featured in the original documentary. So it's both. <laughs> Amazing, because I felt like it was just scratching the surface of each one of those <laughs> technologies. And I really wanted to dig down in more detail so they've done a great job there and I did notice there was a lot of variety in the types of scientists that were there it's beautiful to hear that that was an actual intention behind the series as well yeah more particular parts you talk about coastal carbon capture so tell me a bit more about one what that could actually do in terms of bringing this to net zero by 5050 and what it actually is. Yeah, so coastal carbon capture is the technology that we are currently developing at Vesta. We're doing the R&D behind it. Um, it is, its academic name is, it's called coastal enhanced weathering. So if anyone is interested in reading papers on this, you can go Google coastal enhanced weathering. <laughs> um, but I mean, really the crux of it is that we are trying to The crux is that, you know, the earth has its sort of natural process for um, controlling atmospheric carbon dioxide levels and regulating global temperatures and and keeping the planet habitable for life. Um, Earth's natural process for doing all this is called chemical weathering. And so coastal enhanced weathering, the technology we're working on is really just trying to accelerate this natural process So harnessing the same reactions um, to try and mitigate climate change. So in short, what we're doing is we are um, placing a natural mineral called olivine in coastal environments. And 
Olivine is, as I said, it's a naturally occurring mineral. It's all over the planet, but it has this really cool property that when it interacts with carbon dioxide in water, that carbon dioxide in water sort of slowly dissolves that olivine and that chemical reaction takes CO2 out of the atmosphere. So by putting this mineral as sort of sand-sized grains in coastal environments, where it has lots of water and lots of carbon dioxide to react with, we can um, accelerate Earth's natural process and use this as a way to combat climate change. So that's what we're doing. Um, that's coastal carbon capture, that's coastal enhanced weathering. Um, and one of the things that makes this technology so exciting is its scale potential, right? So turns out there's a lot of ocean on planet Earth. <laughs> there's a lot of coastal environments, coastal shelves where you could actually implement this technology. And so um, the sort of statistic that I think really helps capture the potential scale of this is that if you were to implement it in just point 25% of the coastal shelves, just the shelves of, of the planet, you could capture a billion tons of carbon dioxide. So it's, yeah. And that's really because the shelves are just so extensive, right? So it's just, there's so much room where we could potentially implement it and, and have real impact for climate change. What I love about that is that you're taking a naturally occurring resource and essentially you're allowing nature to take its course with it. Yeah. So yeah. it feels, in my mind, a little less invasive than we're going to put this unnatural thing into the water and sort of cause a chemical reaction there. Yeah. So I really love that. The, the science, the sort of the science, the scientist in me, if I can remember being a scientist now, <laughs> goes, okay, so you've taken this carbon dioxide from the air and we've now done this chemical weathering and we've put it into the ocean how do we make that carbon safe in the ocean so that it doesn't go through more chemical processes and end up with warming of water or bleaching of um you know how does it not affect the actual um sea yeah yeah that's actually it's a it's a great question and the the second part of this that i really love is that when this chemical reaction happens, the, the sort of the new form that that carbon takes in the ocean is as something that's called bicarbonate or alkalinity, which is a dissolved form, form of carbon. Uh -huh. And alkalinity is actually the antidote to ocean acidification. So um, it's actually got the second benefit of when we add this, it will counteract a lot of the negative impacts of climate change on the marine environment. Um, so that's why we, we think of this as um, safe, but actually beneficial to the marine environment in a, in a variety of other ways. That's very cool. Thank you so much for explaining that to me and the many other people who are worried about what will happen as a result of all the carbon in the water as well. So we've got like a twofold improvement just from using the olivine. What is the status of this project at the moment? So we've talked about the big grand vision of removing billions of um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So what's the kind of the status of it? Yeah, so I mean, this technology in general, like I said, it's been out there in the academic literature for a number, um, really decades at this point. Um, but what we're doing at VESTA, so far our research project has been really focused on 
completing the fundamental science that needs to be done to show that it can be effective at efficiently capturing carbon, um, but also to confirm that this will be safe for the marine environment. Um, so we've been doing a suite of research projects across um, disciplines. So looking at geochemistry, looking at ecology, looking at geomorphology, which is the transport of sediment in the marine environment, um, and sort of checking all these foundational research boxes. But now we're at the point where we have to, you know, we really have to go out and actually just try this in the real world. Um, because you never really know how things will work until you, you actually just go out and try it. So we are developing pilot projects for coastal carbon capture. Um, we are developing one in the Dominican Republic, and we have a few others in the pipeline um, in the United States and other locations. Um, so we are, we are, we've got our first pilot project sort of up and running in the DR. We're collecting baseline measurements of our field site, you know, really trying to understand the, as I said, the chemistry, the ecology of the site in really high detail so that once we put that olivine down, we can um, quantify to a very robust level any impacts, um, any change, uh, the carbon capture, for example. So that's where we are right now. Um, and in the process in parallel with all that, really thinking about the business model to bring this to scale um, and trying to build out partnerships in, in the right industry so that even when it, we show that it's safe and effective at the small scale, we can quickly accelerate it to a larger scale um, and really start having an impact on climate change. Thank you so much. I'm noting that you're creating all those measurements in order to get a really good control of yeah. what it actually is, that baseline, before you start to do something with that. There's, um, I remember from some of my experiments, that was definitely something that I learned when I moved from chemistry into biotechnology, that suddenly there was this whole thing about control reactions and um, needing to actually baseline things. So yeah. kind of get the importance of that now. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to ask you about that is the fact that an idea is only an idea unless it's actioned. It's kind of worthless unless it's implemented. And you talked about this being in the scientific literature for some time now, but it's not actually been actioned or implemented. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've taken that traditional academic pathway and now you've moved across into industry. Was that one of the defining reasons why you shifted or was there something else for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, that was probably 50% of it, um, was feeling like in academia, I mean, obviously um, that is a great environment for doing very exploratory sort of um, inquisitive uh, science. But when it comes to actually taking action on that science, you know, this is, it's just not the venue for it. And um, you know, I was in academia and I, I was working on negative emission technologies in academia, um, which I was very excited to be doing this applied science. But at the same time, it wasn't really being applied, right? It was still, the goals were not to implement at a large scale. The goals were to publish papers <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, win additional grants to do more research, you know? And so I just felt like, there was so much here, 
but I wasn't being, I wasn't able to really see it to completion the way I wanted to. So um, that was a huge part of why I, I switched into industry and into negative emission technology, like tech development um, was because I wanted to see the science that I was doing have greater scale impact. Um, but, you know, the other reason that I switched out of academia and into industry uh, was comes down to work-life balance. Um, and I really, I got to the point in my academic career where to keep going on that pathway, I was gonna, the next obvious step was sort of a tenure track research, um, a tenure track um, professorship. And I, you know, I have two young kids, um, two under the age of four. And I just, I, I didn't want to, I felt like if I were to pursue a tenure track position, I was going to miss like the first five years of my kid's life <laughs> working all the time. And I just, I wanted, uh, I wanted a job that allowed me to have more time with my kids and still get to do amazing science. And I found that in industry, which was, it's been really exciting for me. Yeah, I love the fact that you had your kids on the documentary as well. I think you mentioned it was Henry and Ezra. Yeah, yeah. When that was filmed, I think Henry was three and Ezra was eight months old. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. still really in the early stages of, yeah, brain not fully functional, I would say, sleep deprivation stage. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, it was really great that the One Dream team was open and encouraging of really highlighting my family in the documentary because, you know, my kids are so much of a motivation for me, but they are also, you know, in my job, they are, I, I try and integrate them into my sort of workplace to whatever extent I can. Um, you know, I bring them to meetings sometimes and I make sure that my, my coworkers know I have kids, I have time blocks on my calendar that are, you know, it says right there, you know, family time, I am not available. <laughs> like, I want people to know that um, these, that I have kids, that they're a big part of my life, and that they are a priority. Um, so it's true in my day to day life. And it was just really excellent that I was able to, to show that in the documentary series as well. And clearly, you said it was like, there's two parts of this 50, almost 50% is around fulfillment, being actually able to see and feel the difference that you're making at a much closer level than just this purely academic applied work. And that was the same for me, but in a different track for me, obviously through coaching and training, but only tangibly being able to know that there was a difference somewhere potentially in the future wasn't enough anymore. So you've made that switch. And also the work-life balance, it sounds like in the new company, you, you've created that work-life balance. If you had applied that model of, you know, blocking out your calendar, saying this is family time, being really open about what's going on for you in terms of your family in the academic setting, do you think that you would have created the work-life balance that you were looking for there? Or do you actually feel that it's impossible to do that in the academic environment? It's, well, yeah, I think, for me, the level of work-life balance I wanted, I'm not convinced that I would have been able to achieve that in academia. And the reason for that is it's that 
in the US academic setting, and I know that the structure in the UK, for example, is a little bit different in the US, but in the US, when you're in a tenure track R1 university, you, you're sort of sort of the king of your own castle, right? You have your own research group, your own lab facilities that you oversee. You are, you are running the whole show. Um, and there is, you know, not additional support for your grad students or whomever if you're just gone for a while because you have to prioritize your kids. Um, what I felt that I was able to access and I have been able to access an in industry is really just this recognition that sure, I'm the VP of science, but if I can't be there, I have an amazing team of highly trained scientists that have their heads on straight that can sub in for me and can be there when I can't. Um, and that flexibility and that, that, that team attitude that I have in industry, I think allows me to have more of that work-life balance than I would have been able to achieve in, in the, at least the US academic system. Mm, thank you. And one of the things that I hear the most in particular from, um, let's say the postdoc and fellow level in transitioning into industry is that I won't have the same creative freedom that I do in academia. So I just want to check in with you. How has that been for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely heard that a lot when I was thinking, when I was starting to talk to people about transitioning from academia to industry, you know, people are like, oh, but you're not going to have, you're not going to have the freedom there that you do here. Um, I, I, I have not found that to be the case. I mean, I, I love my job in that, like I said, the research and the science we're doing is so interdisciplinary and, I feel like I have had the opportunity to learn so much about so many different branches of science, to work with so many scientists, um, to develop research initiatives in so many different directions. I feel that I have so much um, sort of creativity in my job. Um, but I also really love that the science, although it's broad, is very strategic. You know, I love that it's we're not following every single scientific question that seems a little bit interesting. We're following really interesting scientific questions that are getting us places. Um, and you know, and I also think at the end of the day, even in academia, your science is to a large degree um, uh, filtered by funding agencies. <laughs> you know, you need to get funding to do it. And if you have a passion project that no one wants to fund, you know, it's it's gonna be challenging to do that. So there are limitations in that space as well that um, I think are worth acknowledging. Lovely, so it's not just following interest or curiosity for curiosity's sake, as sometimes we fall into that mode of thinking in academia, oh, this is interesting and oh, what happens if we do this? But it's actually moving beyond academia is about saying, this is the big picture vision that we're working on. Let's not lose sight of that does it fall within that strategy? Is it moving us towards or not? And for me, that's a more purposeful way of being in life. I have to say, if you've got that really clear intention out there in the future. And for yeah. you, it's a big, a big goal and a big intention that could be the whole of your life's work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really, you know, I, I thrive on the, as you said, the purposeful nature of it. Um, it's certainly not for everyone. You know, academia is absolutely the right place for a lot of people. But for me, I love having 
this this vision and this intention that every day I know what I'm marching towards and I can see in real time the steps we're taking to get there. Um, and I find that very, very fulfilling. Good. And in terms of your particular advice, if there are people out there looking to make that step from academia into not just industry, but beyond academia in any capacity, do you have like a, a series of advice that you would give to people? Yeah, um, I think the number one thing is to really go out of your way to talk to people outside of academia and not get trapped in your little bubble. Um, I've, I certainly felt that way when I was thinking about making the transition. I was trying to learn more about potential career paths outside of academia, but I felt there was this wall because everyone I knew was in academia and had never made that transition. And I would even go to you know, conferences and they'd be having a workshop on careers outside of academia. And you know, I felt like I was seeking out information, but those conferences were still largely academic conferences. And so the information I was getting back um, was largely, oh, if you wanna leave academia, you can go work for um, a journal and be an editor. And I was like, well, I don't wanna spend the rest of my career reading other people's papers. <laughs> you know, That's not what I want either. Wow. <laughs> I still wanna do science, but just not in this setting. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I think you have to just, you know, harness things like LinkedIn and harness, um, people like you, Hannah, who are there to give coaching um, and have connections outside of academia um, and try and really reach, um, reach outside your comfort zone and, and reach out to people and get advice from people who have already made that step because you're gonna learn so much from that. Um, and it's going to, I think, really give, give people the confidence to take what can be a really daunting step when everyone around you is saying, maybe you shouldn't do it so yes there can be quite a lot of resistance as particularly from people who want to stay in that security safety comfort zone of academia and haven't decided to make a different track for themselves should they wish to do so um because of course if everybody moved beyond academia we wouldn't have any academics anymore yeah so um <laughs> of course there have to be some winners on that pipeline as well but networking, I was having a conversation with some PhD students from the University of Bristol today on just that topic. And we often, when we need our network the most, when we want to say move beyond academia, that's when we realize, huh, did I put any effort into actually developing a network in the first place that I can harness for that step? So my key piece of advice for them was do it early on so that when you actually need your network, it's there for you. Um, and you can actually harness it. So yeah, LinkedIn for me is one of the major routes that people can develop connections, particularly in COVID times where we don't have so much access to people face-to-face. -face. It is a free and huge resource that I feel is probably a more powerful search bar than Google um, <laughs> or any of the other uh, generic, um, <laughs> I won't just single out Google, but I feel like it's such a valuable search bar where you can search for people, post groups, so much information and people out there who are very willing to talk to you, even if they don't know you. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You can, it's sort of astounding how much people, you know, if you message people saying, oh, I'm looking for a job, you might not get a reply. But if you message people saying, I'm looking for advice, yeah, you know, I think the hit rate is really, I mean, I, I know I'm, I, I am definitely a sucker for, <laughs> for people <laughs> reaching out, being like, oh, your career path's really interesting. I'd love to learn more about it. You know, I, I just, I know how much I wish I, had had examples like that in my life when I was still in academia and thinking about transitioning. Um, and so I, you know, I love to try and give back to other early career scientists and, and just give them, you know, sort of an honest overview and of my path and knowing it's not right for everyone. And that's, that's totally fine, but just helping people make sort of informed decisions and get um, balanced opinions, um, I think is sort of, um, sort of a service, you know, that um, I'm, I love providing to other women in STEM. So talking of advice, because you've just mentioned um, that you like to give advice to other people and that that would be really beneficial for people's um, careers as well, which of course it is. I want you to go back to, let's say the start of your PhD. What piece of advice, if you could go backwards in time, would you whisper in your ear as a first day PhD student? Think really, I wish I had thought to myself, like to think very hard about why I wanted to do a PhD. You know, what were my goals and to do a really honest assessment of whether a PhD was important for achieving those goals. Um, I think something that I've realized as I've moved through is that a PhD is an essential step for certain career paths and is actually detrimental for others. And so thinking really, really carefully about, you know, what is it that you really want to try and get out of um, a PhD and, you know, what are your career goals and doing the research and doing the, the diligence behind understanding whether or not this is on the right path or again, whether or not this is just, you know, I think sometimes when you're a bachelor's student or a master's and you have um, talent in STEM, the academics in your life often encourage you to go after a PhD because they see that you could have real potential there. But just because you could have potential there doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for your career, so. I love that. And it's that old academic pathway of the next opportunity presenting itself to you. You know, like you said, when people see potential in you, they offer you PhD positions and almost sometimes you don't even have to apply for them, particularly. They just happen and they appear and then you take the next step and the next step. And somehow you haven't been conscious in the way that that career has unfolded in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I love that advice of becoming really conscious about each and every step that you're taking. And is it more aligned or not aligned? than the rest and if you don't know what your vision is or where you're heading out in the future the UN have come up with 17 global goals that um that they that world leaders feel that it's important to be worked on and if you look at them and pick one for the head and one for the heart that's a great start in having some form of vision for what can guide you moving forward it's like a more out there vision so being a woman in STEM, just out of interest, have you had any 
barriers that you have noticed that you came have come up against either in academia or having moved beyond academia? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, sort of, unfortunately, if you name it, I think I've, I've dealt with it in, in spades, really. Um, I think all the things people sort of highlight, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, social isolation, being the only woman in the room. These are unfortunately things that have been present in my career really at every step of the way, um, which is kind of, that's sort of an unfortunate thing to say, but it's also it's the reality of, of um, this path that um, in my experience, at least, so. It's such a shame that that is the re reality and it's kind of hit home to me that you call it, yeah, I've had that in abundance. I've had it in spades. So I come up against all the kind of the top barriers and um, being a woman in science. So now you are VP of a company. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you're, you've actually stepped into leadership, scientific leadership in a really big way. So have you noticed any transition you have had to make in terms of um, becoming a leader? Yeah, I think probably on a weekly, if not daily basis about whether or not I am being the kind of leader that I wish I had had at every step of my career. Um, I try and be incredibly intentional about it and um, try to set examples for my team um, about how, um, how, I, how I think we should be operating in, a, in an honest but respectful environment. So I think, um, you know, you can ask anyone on my team. I do not shy away from giving feedback to folks when I see something that just didn't feel quite right. Um, and a lot of that is I'm trying to, to model the behaviors that I hope my team, my team members embody and to create a safe space where they know that it's okay to have a voice um, and feel empowered um, and that the person at the top is going to listen and take it seriously. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of intention that um, I put into that. Yeah, as I said, almost on a daily basis. And you mentioned there about creating trust and respect and feedback is a really important method for you doing that. Did they give you any feedback? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get feedback all the time, <laughs> which wow. is great, which is great. Um, I get feedback from our CEO and I get feedback from my team, team members um, and yeah, I mean, it's not always, it's not always easy, you know, feedback can be both positive and negative, I should highlight, you know, so um, it's always great, of course, to get positive feedback, but when you have constructive feedback as well, um, you know, it's not always easy, but it's important that we all listen, you know, because all of us um, can be doing better and can be learning and adapting. And um, again, it's, you know, I, I, I want to be able to give feedback. And so I know that I need to be very open-minded and um, thoughtful when I get feedback. You know, when people come to me and say things, they're saying it for a reason. You know, there's, 
there's something there that I need to be listening to and I need to take that seriously. Um, so, yep, it's a big part, big part, and not just for me, but I would say best in general, we have a great culture around feedback um, that I'm, I'm very proud of. And the research shows actually that you increase the trust levels when you have feedback flowing in all directions, up, down, side to side. And like you, feedback can be challenging to receive. I now try to think of it as the gift that it is. So if I kind of look at a piece of feedback and I say, is there a positive intent behind that feedback? Usually there is. Is it actionable in some way? Mm -hmm. If it is, then no matter what that feedback is, it's a gift. And then ultimately it's up to you to choose whether or not you actually implement that or not. So you could take it and you could go, yeah, but I'm, I, I choose not to do something with that. But I just like to take myself through those questions to try and calm the kind of natural response that sometimes we have to, to feedback in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like creating an environment with just low stakes feedback, you know, not, not letting it be only when there's a big problem, do we give each other feedback, but sort of micro tweaks here and there. It, I think it just helps take the pressure down and makes it easier to receive feedback when, you know, it's, it's not, uh, we need to have a meeting about feedback now. And you're just sitting there shaking nervous about like, oh gosh, what are they going to say? Like, you know, it just, it's, it just takes the pressure off. Um, and it can, yeah, like I said, make you more receptive to it and then easier to, to sort of think about it and understand it. So. And I would much prefer that than having a big dose of it once a year for you yeah. to go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really love that leadership style that you have created there. And you're obviously reaping the benefits of the trust and respect that you and the intentionality that you're taking behind your leadership. So um, just know that there are people watching you and wanting to emulate what you're doing. I think often we sit in a position and we're always looking up to, oh, the mentors that are ahead of us and forget that the actions we're taking are being observed by all of those coming through. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, and it has to be, it has to be at every step, you know, at all levels of, of, of um, team members. Um, yeah, it works best and we're all doing it together, not just looking to the future. Yeah, lovely. So I want to bring this to a 360 now and come back to climate, the oceans, CO2 capture. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the fact that you are working with oceans. And you talk in the documentary about people having a particular affinity with water and the ocean. That certainly is the case for me. I am a huge wild swimmer open water swimmer, cold water ice swimmer. I just, I love the sensation and the feeling and the freedom that comes with being in the water. So what is it for you? What is it for me that I love about the ocean? Yeah. I think it's the, it's the great unknown of it. You know, I love standing at the edge of what feels like the abyss, you know, and, and knowing that you know, there's so much out there that we, that we don't, you know, that we haven't seen, that we haven't studied, that we don't understand, that there's, there's really a whole other planet happening below the surface. And we're just standing on the edge, sort of 
peeking in. Um, yeah, it's just, there's a real sense of excitement and adventure and curiosity that, um, that I get when thinking about the ocean and, and everything it contains. Oh, that's beautiful. Thinking about it as a whole other planet beneath the surface brings it to a whole new um, light to me. And I just have this vision of you lying on a beach with the waves rolling in with the olivine in the <laughs> hand that we don't even realize is there and that we all have this um, clean air that we can breathe and that there is going to be a huge shift in climate change as a result of the work that you're doing. So I wanted to thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for inspiring us today and also knowing that what you're doing will make a difference to your children to Henry and Ezra, to my children, and all of those that are to come as well in the world. So thank, thank you, Grace. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.